This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. see this guy all the time on CNN. He's always talking about medical things and and he has a new um, HBO special, One Nation Under Stress. Let me welcome the one and only Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Hey, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Nice to be on the greatest, hottest show in the galaxy. Hottest show in the galaxy. Yeah, there was a poll. Um, The Martians (laughs) were trying to hold out, but we we put them in a headlock. You got them. Yeah, Yeah. all right. Um, We do Wellness Wednesday on our show, and um, we're really committed to health. Um, so we cover the range on That's any great. given week. We have several doctors, uh, naturopaths that are yeah. regulars on the show. Um, but under stress, stress is such a, uh, it's like back pain. It's a vague, nebulous yeah. term. Yeah. yeah. How, yeah. Do, how, do, how do you define stress I... and how do we eradicate it? Stress is one of these things that is it is uh, it is nebulous, and and it's funny because we've treated it that way in the medical world for a long time. We all know it's not constant stress is a bad thing, and we're getting a better idea of what it does to the body. Uh, we know what it can do to your blood pressure, your heart rate, your blood vessels. I think what is what is changing now uh, is that we have got a better idea of what it does to the brain. And how it changes your brain in a way that then becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. When you're under stress, we know that the brain, certain areas of the brain change that are responsible for your judgment, for your ability to make good decisions. So think of it like this. If you have a, if you're under an inordinate amount of stress, your choices about dinner tonight might be affected. Your choices about empathy in terms of how you treat your friends and family tonight could be affected. We don't carefully draw lines between these things. We just think stress, my blood pressure went up. But stress, my brain changes, and therefore I make poorer decisions later on in my day or my week is something that we're starting to become much more familiar with. What Karen, what really got me interested in this was was the fact that in the United States, life expectancy has dropped three years in a row. I mean that you gotta let that settle in for a second, right? We are one of the wealthiest life countries. Life expectancy has dropped. So I joke. I mean, I don't joke. I, I tell my listeners I'm gonna be here till I'm 120. I, I, I'm never gonna have an ulcer because I don't hold things in. Good for you. And you know, when when it comes to stress, though, I think a lot of us don't really even understand how to identify it because, particularly people, black women in particular, hmm. we just power through. We're never taught to recognize certain things and even if you feel it you just power through because that's well, how we've been t- trained c- can i say something that may may uh maybe not, not everyone agrees with this but but let me, let me just say that stress i don't think is the enemy mm. okay uh people and and people who say i don't want any stress in my life i think that's neither a good nor a possible goal to have we all do need stress. I mean, no matter what. I mean, you 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 do a very high profile job. You do all these things. You need a certain amount of stress to survive and thrive. I think what we're learning. You still haven't defined it. All right. So so Dr. Gupta, um, life expectancy dropping last three years in a row. Yeah. And I still can't define stress because you know when as you say it. I don't think I have a stressful life, even though people look at my life and go like, how do you do all of these things? And I'm like, I just do it. I get up every day, have a plan. I knock it out. I right. come home. I go to sleep. Right. No, 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 no. Question. I mean, if you want to define it medically in some way, it is a it is a objective rise in hormones that, that increase your blood pressure, your heart rate. 
Cortisol is the stress hormone. So mm-hmm. when someone has high cortisol levels, higher than normal. Uh, and what impact does that have, you know, physiologically? You're a neurosurgeon. So, so physiologically, yeah. we've been defining it for some time in terms of the impact on blood vessels specifically. And when you have an impact on blood vessels, they become more constricted. That raises your heart rate. That raises your blood pressure. And we know that increases your risk of having heart disease. The, the research on stress and the elevated levels of these stress hormones in your body and the impact on the brain is newer research. That's stuff that has come out just over the last few years. What I think is also important is how people then cope with stress. That's, that's become the biggest so sort of predictor. Stress. Because athletes obviously have stress. They're right. adrenaline, they're, you know, before a game, before a match, before, you know, all of those things help propel them to success. Yes. And some could argue the same in the workplace, right? right? So if you come in, you know, into this arena and you're, the mic goes on, you're ready, you know, all of those things get you prepared for a speech. Yeah. The, the raised blood pressure level and all that, that gets you prepared. So how do we manage that so it doesn't lead to disease? So if stress is not the enemy for all the reasons you just mentioned, then it is the constant stress that is the enemy. There's this great book. We interviewed this, this author for the film, and the book is called Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. It's a great title, right? And basically, when a zebra is being chased by a lion, they have a lot of stress. And by the way, they need that stress. But as soon as they're not being chased anymore, they're calmly grazing. Stress levels have come way back down. So you want the stress when you need it but you don't want to have it all the time and you want to be able to have these periods of relief from it. Unfortunately, in the United States in particular, we don't have that luxury of having periods of time where we don't have stress anymore. We're under this constant barrage of stress. But self-induced, self-inflicted, right? I I can tell you what I think about. I think a lot of it is self-inflicted and to that extent, very preventable. But one thing I want to point out, the United States is unique in the world for this, okay? So you look at other countries and you say they've had ups and downs in their economy. They've had ups and downs in their labor force challenges. They have the same sort of lifestyle challenges we do with diabetes and obesity and things like that. They have policy challenges with immigration, whatever it might be. And yet, they don't seem to have the same levels of stress as we do. They don't seem to have the same levels of what we call deaths of despair as we do. When we say life expectancy is falling in this country, it's not like people are just all of a sudden dying of heart attacks. We know what is happening to what is spiked in terms of these causes of death. Drug overdoses, suicides, which have gone up 30% over the last 30? 20, 30% over the last 20 years, and <clears throat> liver cirrhosis typically from alcoholism. Deaths of despair. What do these things have in common? In, in some ways, they're all self-inflicted, right? Self-medicating self-medicating this sort of profound, constant, toxic stress away. And we're paying for that with our lives. Mm. But, but the question that we kept asking is, why is the United States so different? Why, there's other wealthy, developed countries. This isn't the question of capitalism versus socialism. Why is the United States so different? And then, Karen, when you look within the United States, look at the lar- three largest demographics, blacks, whites, Hispanics. Blacks have higher mortality rates than whites, but they've been coming down for the last 20 years while whites go up. Hispanics actually have lower mortality rates than whites already. They continue to go down while whites go up. So what you can now say, and it's, it's a really, it's, it's a extraordinary thing to be able to say, is that if you look at every population of people anywhere in the developed world, only one of them 
has not incre- has not been increasing in life expectancy, and that is the white, primarily working class in the United States of America, one of the wealthiest countries in the world that spends more on healthcare than any other country. What is happening to the white working class in America? Why are they dying these deaths of despair? We and what we found over this two-year investigation was a lot of it probably has to do with a form of stress. Now, why stress on this population specifically? They were the they are they were the sons and daughters of the greatest generation, right? Their parents went off and won the world war, and then came back and built America. And their kids were supposed to inherit the earth. They were supposed to inherit the United States at least. And instead, they found their jobs leaving, their wages decreasing. And they themselves dying at a faster rate than any other population in the world. The idea of dashed expectations, you know, of expecting something and not receiving it, being such a toxic stressor, is 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 something that you know a lot of uh, psychologists and social scientists are now pointing to as a possible cause here. There's other causes. Well, I mean, I'm glad you know we talk about this quite frequently on my show. Obviously, uh, we've all been dealt a great lie, right? Um, this is the greatest nation in the world. I think it is, but it's built on a lie. It's built on a lie of exceptionalism. Mm-hmm. Um, and until we write that, you know, the anxiety that people experience individually and then collectively as groups, first of all, race is a made up construct. So the very notion that your whiteness should give you some access to something is a fallacy that this country has uniquely, by the way, right. baked into the soil That's and right. the fabric of its of its flag and of its constitution. Um, and now as we, you know, was just having this conversation yesterday, as we start to realize those of us who have been marginalized communities, those of us who have been demonized throughout history, you're starting to realize, hey, I'm not stupid. I'm not the lowest end of the the you know on right. the totem pole. I don't come from a dark continent. I actually come from a continent that was the birthplace of civilization. Hey, Christopher Columbus didn't discover America. Hey, as a matter right. of fact, you didn't want me to know how to read because you knew how brilliant I was. Hey, and once we start to equalize things, something happens. So for 400 years, you didn't have to work hard. And now you're coming up against people who have come to this country from other places like your family ready to take advantage of the greatest country in the world and are kicking ass at every level. I, I, I completely agree. And, 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 and it's in a way you look at a population of people who, who thought they, you know, deserve something based on their, their legacy birthright. and yeah. their parents and their birthright and the color of their skin, whatever it might be. And those things did not manifest because because that was never the way the world was going to turn out. But the, it wasn't conscious. So the, the crazy conscious. thing is, you know, to, to have this conversation, it's nuanced because there are people that might be in their feelings right now listening. But it's a nuanced conversation because it's not a conscious thing. Nobody gets up thinking, I'm superior. No one gets up and thinks, my people are right. supposed to. It's baked in. So it's a subconscious, unconscious, deeply woven into the DNA of who we are as Americans. Yeah. And now we have to kind of suss through it because it's not holding up to the to the test, right? It, it, it doesn't. It doesn't hold up to the test. And we know that that this is a unique, uniquely American and uniquely white working class situation, right? So it, by virtue of that, you can start to eliminate other potential causes here. You can look at other countries that have similar demographics and say, well, they're not suffering the way that we right. are. Their life expectancy continues to go up. They're not dealing with the same issues here. What is it about this specifically? And I think I think you know. 
I, I think the belief really within family units or within generations of family is, is that, you know, look, I'm going to leave the world a better place for my kids. My, I hope my kids do better than I do. I hope their world and their lives are better than my life, right? That's why I work hard. and That's part of what I want. And, and, and inadvertently, maybe unwittingly, we place those expectations mm, on, the, on next the next generation. generation. Mm-hmm. But the world changed, Karen, right? Yeah. The world changed, and maybe those expectations were unfair, to place on them in the first place. But if that's your entire identity, that that is supposed to be your course in life, and it doesn't happen, and frankly, it can't happen right. because the world changed, right. think about the toxic I, level I'm, of stress. I'm thinking about it as you say this because I bang this gong every day, but now you're forcing me to think about it differently because as somebody is in this space of despair, which you don't want anyone to be in, right. you have to start thinking about as I awaken, as I untrain my mind and become unbrainwashed, I have to start thinking about how do we help to get, because here's the, the other side of that. The other side of that is bringing us a nation of people who are afraid. Mm-hmm. In addition to the life expectancy, they're afraid and their fear is playing out in a way that's making this country toxic that's right. as a whole. So the cancer's eating from the inside. And while I can sit here and go, hey, that's your problem, it's not just their problem because it's impacting all of us yes. with the leadership that we have, with how how we're treating one another civilly in society, how people are, you know, running into their little, you know, pockets and, and seeing one another's enemy because you have to hold on to something and I don't want you in here. So we're going to build a wall and we're going to do all these things, which is un-American. You- so we have to figure out how to, to bring people into the fold. I don't know if you deal with this in a, One Nation Under Stress, but as I'm talking to you, Dr. Gupta, I'm, I'm just thinking that this is something we need to do. I think, you know, I, I, these, these, are, these are really important points. I mean, look, when, when, when if you thought you deserved or you were expecting something and you didn't get it, uh, the jobs went away because of automation, because of outsourcing. We know why jobs went away, but that's not maybe the first thing that comes to people's minds. They think, well... I didn't get what I deserved. Who do I blame for this? Who, who, who made this not happen for me? Who took it away in some way? It's not healthy. It's not healthy for anybody, obviously, to have that sort of framework of thinking, I think, to your point, because it is fear-based and it leads to some incredibly toxic behavior. The other part of this as well, which, which we found, which I think is, I think also part of what you're saying, Karen, is that the United States, out of wealthy nations, has the highest income inequality in 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 the world in terms of wealthy nations. What's interesting is we, as part of the film, we have this experiment that we show with these two capuchin monkeys, and the capuchin monkeys are like the organ grinder monkeys in movies. Mm-hmm. People very smart. They're in two cages next to each other. They're doing a task over and over again. They give a rock to the examiner and they get a treat, which is a piece of cucumber. They do this over and over again, twenty times in a row. At some point, we start giving the monkey on the right a piece of grape, which is a more desirable treat. Monkey on the left can see this, right? So first couple times, he still gets a cucumber. He's like, wait, I'm still getting a cucumber. He's kind of upset about it. Third time, he throws the cucumber back at the examiner. Are you serious? Starts literally rattling the cage. No way. Stress levels skyrocket in that monkey who's still receiving the cucumber. Yeah. But here's here's the even more surprising thing, is that the stress levels in the monkey that was receiving the grape also went way up. Point is that if you live in a society that has glaring and blatant inequality, conspicuous inequality, it is unstable for everybody. It doesn't matter where on the spectrum you lie, rich, poor, have, Mm. have not, 
That is not a good situation to be in. And let, let me be clear. This isn't a, a, a argument against capitalism or an argument no, for socialism. No, it's, it's a humanity argument. Yeah. Which is what I think, you know, I was I was talking with Marianne Williamson a couple of weeks ago. She's running for president. And I'm like, you know, first I'm like, you don't have a snowball's chance in hell because you're, you're a spiritual guru. And she said, what this country needs is a healer. Somebody that was going to bring us together. And I was like, she's absolutely, we do need that. Right. I don't know if it's going to be in the form of you as president, but this is what is at the crux of what's the matter with America right now. It's not politics. It's not religion. It's humanity. And that we live in a country where people are not just okay with people not having, but the the people who have are building in it's inculcated into their very being that they got got to have more. I yeah, but but I, I agree. But I tell you one thing: the grape receiving monkey, though. I mean, just not that that's the 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 answer to every question here. But I think to the extent that that's a metaphor, I don't think it's within our DNA to be comfortable with glaring inequality. But we've been conditioned. We've been conditioned and inculcated to continue to to want even more and more grapes. But that is not that does not sit well with us biologically, right? So it's it's so killing us. It's that that's it the whole point. Us. When we start to say, okay, why is life expectancy falling? Here, here okay. How as, do we get people to understand that their their greed and their inhumanity, even if they're benefiting, even if they're a billionaire, is ultimately killing them? They 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 already know it. They they know it because they feel it. The, the the irony of the whole situation is, and this isn't this is true with a lot of basic educational principles in our country, is that they've just been taught the wrong thing. It's not that they need to be taught the right thing. It's that they need to undo the the bad teaching. Mm-hmm. We we know we know, for example, that we are as humans more likely to benefit from reciprocal altruism. There's a reason why it feels good to do good, right? In some ways, evolutionarily, why does that make sense? survival of the fittest. I'm keeping mine. I'm taking mine. If I give you something, that's going to hurt me. And yet that's not the way humans feel. They actually feel good when they're charitable, when they do good. Doesn't make sense evolutionarily, but it's the truth. We survived and thrived as a species because we were communal. We were social. We helped take care of each other. That is our natural default position. What we are experiencing now, this this advent of rugged individualism as being the the aspiration, is that you know people are being taught to sort of grab theirs now as much as they can, even if it means stepping on the next guy to get it. And yet the great receiving monkey was stressed out by that right. at a primal level, at a reflexive level. It didn't make sense. Well, I've had time to actually study this on a whole other. You know, it's like I I just told my students I teach at Hunter College that I'm, I'm examining everything I've ever been taught and everything's up for question right now. And what I've come to the conclusion is that my natural, I had a a doctor in recently and we were talking about, you know, uh, he said, the sun is bad. And I said, "Mm, how is that possible? This earth does not exist. It's our proximity to the sun that makes this earth the most powerful uh, life bearing of all. It's the sun. Mm. And I have melanin. This doctor did not. I said, I need the sun. No, sun is bad for everybody. And I'm like, that just, I can't believe I'm talking to a doctor. I'm not a medical, you know, and you're laughing because that's kind of ridiculous to say the sun is I bad. I think absolutisms like that always it's are like generally. Weird. But it, 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 what it taught me is that we've been taught certain things out of books that, you know, have framed and shaped like, for example, you know, survival of the fittest. Right. But if I, my, we all come from Africa. Africa is a land where everyone had food. There was sunshine. I didn't have to dress. I could eat. Trees, plentiful. 
Garden of Eden, if we believe religiously, but it was a land of plenty, right? So I don't have to fight you for something if everybody has access to right. it. That's the mentality that we actually are from the inception, but is when we started, and then through war and everything and domination, now the dominant culture comes from a place of lack, famine, caves, you know, so you're bringing that into a new society right. saying this is who we are, but it's never who we've been. So I actually agree with I you. I think 99% of our human existence, we weren't like that. Communal. This is a rel this is a blink in the eye, a blink of the eye in terms of time frame of yeah. what we're experiencing right now. And it's time to tell the truth. So I'm glad that you're out here doing it. One Nation under stress, HBO, uh, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, you're also, and I'm studying you, you know, you're from India, your family originally. Yeah. And, uh, because I teach at Hunter is one of the most diverse schools in, yeah. the, in the country, kids from all over. I talk to my kids about culture and things like that. And in your culture, you either become a doctor or a lawyer, right? When you come here, is that true? <laughs> Engineer, I guess is or the other you, one. Yeah. But you, 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 you have an edict as a child being raised in an Indian family that you have to be one of these three things, right? I think that the, you know, our parents for the most part, you know, my Indian immigrants in the 60s, 70s, you know, we they were not persecuted or prosecuted in their home countries. They were not fleeing to the United States. They came here in search of educational opportunities and and that was what sort Drove of bound them, them together. Yeah. And I think that, you know, my parents' biggest sort of hope for, for us, and we grew up a very solid middle-class family, was was that their kids would get a good education, you know? Uh, my, interestingly, my parents, neither one of my parents are doctors. They didn't necessarily want me going to medical school because it was really expensive, you know, to, to, to do that. Um, so they would have preferred that I, my dad was mathematics teacher at the time, and he would have preferred that I have done something like that. But, you know, so you're right. So what drew you to medicine? I, you know, I... I um, my grandfather, my mom's dad, had a stroke when I was 12 years old, and I went to go, you know, we were very close and visited him in the hospital and met doctors for the first time, and they were people who whose job was to take care of people. I, I didn't even realize that could be a, an actual profession at the time, and I was a science-oriented kid. I liked that sort of stuff, so I think it just, you know, gradually, I, you know, when I started med school, I thought I was going to be a pediatrician because I love kids. And then I got really interested in the brain and uh, decided to go into neurosurgery. But it was sort of a, you know, just evolution of thinking for me and, and balanced, by the way, with, with life because, you know, you do four years of med school and then I did seven years of training after that. And then I did a year of fellowship and then, and I'm not making any money. My parents are looking at me like, you know, what, what, what what's this? going what on here? This is, you? Yeah, you can barely pay your rent and you know, you're, this is the American dream. What's going on here? So, but you know, I, I, I just, I love it. You know, I, even though I still do this journalism thing as well. Right. I mean, medicine has still remained my first and truest love. I was also, I, I talked to a biologist who's also an artist, who's also a writer, you know, and the, the intersectionality of, of these disciplines make you a better doctor that I, you do this and that make I think it makes you you're a the first doctor. person to say, you know, it's funny because everyone always says, does the medicine help inform your reporting? And, and it, you know, to the extent that I'm more knowledgeable about, you know, medicine, medical stuff, I think it does, but I never expected, as you say, the journalism and that to, to help me be a better doctor because you do get so provincial when you're in medicine and and maybe like your colleague the son the guy who's talking about the son was as well you get so Stuck. myopic right. in your point of view 
what I think journalism has helped me do is sort of go from just the microscope to the telescope, you know, to be able to see a bigger view of the world and to be really interested in my patients' stories. Because that's really what we're here to do. Yeah. Make those connections. Um, so tell me how I live forever because, I'm again, I'm yeah, going to be already, here until I'm yeah, 120. So 120 is pretty good, no? Good. My, you know, my cholesterol is 128. <laughs> my blood pressure is perfect. I don't take any medicine. I carry a little bit, about 20, 30 pounds too much, and I'm working on that. But... What's the key to longevity? Because you also have Chasing Life. Yes. <laughs> Six-part CNN original series. Tell me how I, we chase life. We, we study this. I study this. went to countries all over the world. I think, you know, um, it, it's obviously hard to condense into a one-sentence answer. But one thing that I think is highly protective of most of these diseases, most of the things that shorten our life ultimately, is is the strong social fabric. I, 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 I always know that sounds a bit squishy. And, and hard to define. And, and as a neuroscientist, it makes me uncomfortable to say things that are squishy. And yet, you know, we know countries that are do so much, they, they spend a lot less, they live a lot longer, happier, healthier lives than we do. And I say, well, they, they, they have the same issues with diabetes and obesity and lifestyle, all that, and same concerns at a policy level. What What is it? What do they got that we don't got, you know? And oftentimes it comes back to the true investments in the social fabric. I think you have... What even, does that look like, Dr. It, it feels like people really caring about each other. You know, people always say, that my doctor doesn't spend enough time with me. And I say, that's terrible, but time is a metaphor for something. And that is that you think your doctor doesn't care about you as much. That's the real problem. When people really care about each other, you have communities in the United States where they eat whatever they want, they drink whatever they want, they smoke, they have high cholesterol, all that sort of stuff, and they had some of the lowest rates of heart disease in the country. What was it about these communities? Uh, one of them was this community of Italian immigrants who all just cared about each other. They checked in on each other. They, they didn't just care about themselves. And when you, first of all, when someone cares about you, it's obviously good for you. But when you get to care about somebody else, that's also good for the caregiver. And we, we can measure this and objectify this more than we ever could in the past. So I, I would never discount the value of just being uh, who we are supposed to be as humans, which are instinctively social creatures. I worry a lot about the next generation sitting there on their devices all the time, thinking that they're being social when they're not. I think that that's, that's a problem. And probably the number one problem I think about as a parent nowadays. Mm. But I you think, have, you, you know, three children. I would, yeah, three children, three girls, uh, mm. soon to have three teenage girls. Uh, so, but they're not, you know, it's, that's, that, that part's not stressful, to be honest. People say, oh, you must have so much stress. No, I love my kids. I have a great time with my kids. But I do worry about that sort of stuff. And if I could invest in one thing, uh, it would not be a new therapy for, for brain tumors. It would be a way to improve the social fabric, which I think really would make us happier, healthier, and live longer lives. I thought, watching you on television, that you were a good guy. You know, Thank it, you. Can't, it comes through the TV. I will say in person, you are absolutely everything that I thought you would be. Oh, I appreciate that. And, Thank uh, you. No, and I'm, I, there's a reason why you're here in this world doing the work that you're doing. And I just want to, you know, support everything that you are out there doing. What's your regimen? Because you look amazing, by the way. You look you know, well, I nice appreciate and fit. that. Do you meditate? What are you doing? I, I, I try and take at least 10 to 15 minutes where I'm in control every day, I call mm. it, where I'm not being dictated to or dictated by anyone, not beholden to anyone. Uh, I find just that when you. I, just for me, and it's like, it's such a luxury to say, you know what, I, I, I get to do this, have 10 to 15 minutes. I try and exercise a little bit every day. I've, you know. Do you make it a stressful thing? You just. No, no, I, I feel great. I mean, you can ask Ben, who's sitting over here in the studio we work with. When I exercise, I'm so much better, you know, at everything. And, and uh, I think it's good for my body and my mind. All right. Well, 
One Nation, Under Stress, HBO, also Chasing Life with Dr. Sanjay Gupta on CNN, uh, six-part CNN original series. And every, when, when are you on? Every, uh, on the weekend, uh, you have a weekend weekend program on uh, on CNN as well? Is we, it, so we, what, no, what? Yeah, it's, it's, it comes and goes, All you right. know. What, what do y'all do on <laughs> CNN? Get this man on regularly. If y'all listening right now, because this is a, a national treasure, Dr. Gupta. Oh, we need more that. of him, not less. Huh. All right. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Here. Yeah. Appreciate Best show you. in the galaxy. It is. The uh, hottest. hottest I, show I like in the to galaxy. keep it temperature wise. You got to keep it hot. It's like the sun. Yeah, yeah it. like the sun because we need it. All right. Thanks for being here. I love it. Thank All you. All right. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, 